Hello, my name's Justin Nakuda, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Vera Hitlova, or Hitlova. I have a lot of difficulty pronouncing uh, her name. Yes, uh, this often is a problem that we run into when we talk about Eastern European filmmakers, Asian filmmakers, filmmakers from all over the world, really. North American filmmakers, <laughs> whose names I'm not familiar with. We try, and we cover the waterfront on this podcast, from Kowloon to California. And today, we find ourselves in uh, Soviet Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. Yes, we're talking about the director of Daisies, one of the big movies when people get into experimental cinema. Had you seen this one before, Will? I had not. It had always been on my list, because this is not just a landmark of uh, Soviet cinema, even though it was suppressed in the Soviet Union. And it's not just a landmark of experimental cinema. It's also a landmark of feminist cinema. It's a movie that's come up a lot in recent years as there's been uh, an increasing appetite for uh, female filmmakers and female stories. And we'll get it right out of the way right here is that this is a film that I struggled with mightily. And I had seen it before. I had seen it in a theatrical setting. And when I saw it, I went, huh, maybe there's just something I'm not getting. So I was very excited to read revisit it for this podcast now with my galaxy brain and i had the same reaction again (laughs) like i know why it's important i know why it's radical i know why people like it but it feels like i should be having fun with this yes i had exactly the same feeling however i do say that with respect of course and i want to reassure people listening that i think both justin and i found a lot to appreciate in this filmmaker's work this week i think that the films that she made after uh daisy's kind of shut down her career were much more interesting and her style went in a specific direction that Daisy's hints at but it's a different kind of take on disturbing or kind of shocking an audience. Well, I am by no means an expert in Vera Hitalova. <laughs> Neither of us are. Again, pardon if I mispronounced her name. I know she's made many movies. I've seen three of them. But what strikes me about the three movies is how different they are from each other stylistically. They are all to some degree about living in a corrupt system, living in an insane world. One of them, Daisies, is a madcap Dadaist provocation. Another film that I watched called Panel Story or Birth of a Community, it's this Altman-esque sprawling tapestry, but with a a very strange visual style, Um, almost a visual style, almost like uh, Possession or a movie like that. And then the third movie I watched is a rigorous small scale feminist character study, which feels more in line with the work of somebody like Chantal Ackerman. I think what unites the films is, you know, the same kind of anger, uh, some of the same thematic concerns, but they all three of them seem like different strategies for coping with living in an insane and horrible world. And that's very interesting and makes me interested to explore more of what she has to offer. Going through the films that I watched for this podcast this week, what I found really interesting is that kind of aggressive style is the one that she would adopt a lot in the films that I watched following Daisies, like The Apple Game, which is kind of a more straight ahead, almost romantic comedy thing. The uh, aforementioned panel 
stories. And I also checked out a kind of slasher film, sort of, horror picture called Wolf's Hole. And they all have that, like, in-your-face, handheld, wide-angle, moving the camera all about and creating a sense of unease with just composition and editing when you wouldn't expect an edit. But if you go back all the way to something different, her first feature film, it is much more controlled. And there is that rawness because the film is split in two directions, uh, one more fictional and one more real in the sense of like capturing a moment. But you can sense right there, like Will said, that there's a provocation towards the audience, that there is a kind of like goosing almost of the situations that are being presented on screen. What's the plot of something different, Will? Yeah, I loved this movie. And by the way, you can watch it on the Criterion channel right now, along with a lot of her other films. It has two strands, one of which is presented as documentary, one of which is presented as fiction. The documentary part follows this Olympic gymnast named Eva Bosakova. Pardon if I'm mispronouncing that again. Uh, She is nearing her retirement, but she's training for one more Olympics. And we follow her through her rigorous training regimen, uh, very painful looking training regimen where she's working with a coach who, uh, you know, is working her very hard. And I mean, calling her a coward, slapping her in the face. And this is put in counterpoint to the life of uh, a housewife who lives in a marriage that I think it's fair to say has lost its spark. She has a husband and a son. The husband spends all day at work comes home tired from work wants to read the newspaper at one point they're having a fight over the fact that he reads the newspaper the minute he gets home and he says well where do i have the time to read the newspaper i'm working all day and then she says words to the effect of well my job never stops i work from uh, morning to night i mean i think they both kind of have a point everyone in this movie is living in a prison even if they're not literally living in a prison. You know, these are people who I guess at some point chose this life or maybe this life chose them and now they can't get out of it. In the movie, the housewife tries to escape, start an affair with another man, but it's just a different form of misery that she runs into. It's like she's trading the life that she has, life that she knows, life that she's comfortable with for, as the title says, something different, but it's just bad in a different way. And you look at this Olympic athlete and like, what else is she going to do? She's been training her whole life to get to this point, And now she's at this point and um, she will perform. And then as the film shows, she will become a teacher. That is a cycle. The only cycle that she can go through. It makes you realize that, you know, you, you think you're living a free life. You think you have autonomy over your life. But early on, you make decisions, and those decisions have these consequences that you never expected. And then if you want to get out of that life, yeah, you know, you can be like the housewife who just ends up transferring to another terrible life. It's an incredibly bleak film. Is the film, like, is there joy in what the gymnast is doing? Because while the training is miserable, you see a real performance at the end, and she seems to be smiling. She seems to have had a fun time, even though that there's a shot of her and her competitors all lined up. And I was like, I can't tell them apart. They all look the same. I also think there may even, I mean, correct me if I'm totally wrong about this, but I think there may be even a little bit of ambiguity in how the housewife story ends because, you know, the husband says that he's going to divorce her. He, He says he's had enough and she kind of throws herself at him and she's begging him to stay. And I mean, it's a terrifying thing to 
first of all, give up on a relationship that you've devoted your whole life to and then go do something different, as the title says. Uh, and also just to imagine, just imagine what that would be like, you know? And I mean, like a lot of people in life, the ending seems to indicate that she somehow patched things up and she's back in the miserable existence that she was in at the beginning of the movie because this is the thing that she knows best and her attempts to find something different failed so why even try which is a bummer of a ending and the filmmaking is very masterful i mean these two stories are uh, contrasted to each other in many different ways little details and the movie feels very lived in especially the part with the housewife i mean it's very controlled and even though it's taking place in just an apartment building, every shot is perfectly chosen. Like, this is an early filmmaker trying to make her mark in a very careful, formalist style. I think we should maybe talk about daisies, because in terms of tone, in terms of style, it couldn't be more different than something different. As I said earlier, a lot of the anger is the same. I'll just describe what plot there is in this film. Uh, we open first of all, with stock footage of the U.S. Navy in the Second World War. And uh, then we move on to the main plot. You've got two girls. I think they're older teenagers. There's Marie 1 and Marie 2. Uh, they are very wacky. Oh, they love to make faces and, you know, be shit disturbers. It is essentially a montage of episodic sequences of them blue-balling some older <laughs> businessmen and creating chaos over, like, a colorful, quick-cut, very tableau-esque world. Yeah, in the opening scene, they're acting like robots. They're moving mechanically. They're speaking mechanically. And the soundtrack is mimicking that with, like... Like, they are dolls. That is their representation. That's how the world takes them to be. And then they decide to be bad. So they go on all of these dates, as you said, with older men. Well, well first, they have to take a apple from the Tree of Knowledge <laughs> yes. and take a bite. That's right. Which, I mean, these two characters, I guess you could call them anti-heroes in a way. But I mean, I kind of like the way that the movie retcons the idea of the Tree of Knowledge and sort of like puts a feminist spin on the bible tale to make the tree of knowledge like good yeah it's a thing that lets them be free it, they don't get punished for this they get to break out of their doll-like existence and make wacky faces and create chaos in restaurants yeah so you know there are all those dates with the older men and they wreak havoc on those and they just kind of like discard all the men who are all very confused they go to a nightclub and they wreak havoc there it's like the marx brothers right it, it is kind of like there's that uh I mean, there's the part with an older woman who, like, is very jealous of their youth and freedom. And what do they do to the older woman? They rob her. As they should. There's so many scenes of them, like, destroying food, which is symbolic of men or the patriarchy. Which uh, is supposedly what the Czechoslovakian government used as an excuse to ban the film. <laughs> that there was food being destroyed on screen, and that was an obscene sight to show audiences. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, just reading up on the movie, I was amused that one of the MPs said that it was withdrawn from cinemas because it was depicting the wanton. I don't know if I could describe wanton, but I know what wanton is when I see it, and it's <laughs> daisies! <laughs> I, I feel a bit weird saying that this movie left me like just a little bit cold when like well, I could describe it very easily if I was trapped at a party with these people I'd be like oh my gosh last week we were talking about Ratfink a boo boo and talking about how much we love that and I mean th that movie has a similar spirit to this one although um, it's definitely less 
technically accomplished uh, the the way that she goes from like color to black and white and and tinted footage and the really jagged editing rhythms yeah it's difficult for me to kind of um i don't know extrapolate what left me cold but i never was like laughing along with these characters and i'm not quite sure why was their stuff not wacky enough it's weird because i watched three films that vera made after this and they have slapstick stuff and it's all over the place that works really well and for me, it didn't work in Daisies. And for people who haven't seen Daisies, we are in the minority here. Well, I mean, my, my thumb is still up on this. I mean, there's still plenty to admire. And do you think if it leaves us a little cold, there's a there's a gendered element to this? Because these these girls in this film, they're Groucho. They're Tom Green and Freddy Got Finger. Give me like a, some slapstick or give me some more destructive stuff than what they do in the movie. There's something kind of whimsical about it, isn't there? Like it's... um. Uh, it's not exactly a violent movie. It's it's violent to food. Oh, I love the final set piece when they're just having a big old food fight, doing what Doctor Strangelove didn't have the balls to do. You watched a documentary about the filmmaker this week. Notice that I keep saying the filmmaker because I don't want to keep mispronouncing her name. Because you don't want to say her name. Uh, you watched a documentary. What can you tell us about uh, her upbringing and what led her to film and some of the considerable obstacles that she faced making films in the Soviet Union. Oh my god. Like, looking at her life and what she was able to do, there were so many obstacles. Like, she says it herself, when she got into film school, uh, she was, like, the oldest one in her class, the only woman in her class, that when she married her husband who was a cinematographer, like they got a 16 millimeter camera. She was so excited to film. He wouldn't let her touch it because he said that she would break it and that he still went on to shoot all of her early feature films that after Daisies, they would kind of part ways as creative collaborators. And that's when I actually like her style more when she's kind of on her own and like Daisies being banned, she being banned from making movies. And it was only when the uh, government was looking for some uh, female representation as directors that they went back to her and like Czechoslovakia didn't even have a print of Daisies. They had to go, I believe to Paris to get one because that was the only uncut version that still existed that they could get and so they could make copies of to show look oh Czechoslovakia there's women filmmakers here as well <laughs> and that the next film after a Daisy's like the first big theatrical film the Apple game it was a huge financial success which kind of pissed off uh, you know bureaucrats but they had to keep letting her make films because she had that success under her belt I mean when you watch that documentary it's only an hour long it's mostly just her walking around her house uh, talking about how she just loves filming everything she's interested in everything but she's also kind of like thorny and kind of angry in a way that you don't always see from, you know, elder statesmen, women filmmakers. I think of, again, the adorable grandma that Agnes Varda was, or the way that people portrayed her as near the end of her life. And there's none of that. They're just kind of, you know, oh, I just want to be out there and making movies because this is my passion and they won't let me. I haven't won an international prize in so long. You watched The Apple Game. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. I thought that the style, the slapstickness of it, the playing on a genre, the fact that it's a romantic comedy about this dweeb doctor who's a Lothario. He works at a maternity ward and a new nurse arrives and they, he kind of has a thing for her. They fall in love. And like I was saying, there's like slapstick. There is, if you want to see some babies being born you will see it in the apple game 
And there's that rawness that kind of defined, I think, her filmography, um, you know, later in her career. It doesn't have that kind of daisiness or even something different formalism. It's kind of like in your face, you're in the moment, weird cuts, weird angles, wide angles. And I think that that kind of cohesiveness to it really worked for me in The Apple Gang, which continued on in the film that I know we both watch. Uh, yeah, prefab stories or panel story. I mean, prefab story is probably the better title because like that's what the housing units were called prefabricated high rises they were also known as panel units so you know they both work i think maybe north american audiences prefab like we have the idea of what it is instantly but i believe panel appears on screen you can find it under prefab story on the criterion channel this is a really overwhelming movie i thought it's this oh man it's like less than 90 minutes but there is seemingly a hundred characters running around yeah it's set at this big high-rise park basically with all of these gigantic concrete buildings you know a socialist architecture where it's like it's supposed to be very democratic every unit is the same every building is kind of the same even though that it's falling apart even though it's in the middle of being built <laughs> and that people are all fighting for units yeah that's the visual paradox that's developed i mean it seems perpetually under construction even though every unit seems to also be a hundred years old we meet all of these characters like there's a pregnant young woman there's an out-of-work actor there are old people young people we see a dizzying number of incidents take place and it is i have to say like so perfectly structured the visual cues or even thematic ones that lead from scene to scene whether it be a woman screaming that cuts to fire burning or somebody mentioning uh you know a baby in dialogue and then it cuts to someone actually with a baby these connections are all very intricate in the way that it's constructed which is surprising considering that the camera is moving as if it's barely capturing the action as it's happening on screen yeah it's a difficult viewing experience not just because the visual and editing style is so frantic, but also just because of what we're looking at, this muddy and ugly and gray uh, just area that where everything looks cold and miserable. But it's a very rewarding viewing experience because it's very funny and very dense. Oh, yeah, I thought it was very funny. Like that slapstick I talked about in the Apple game is in play again in this picture. <laughs> that kind of chaos, but it's just controlled enough that you can get invested in what's going on. And I never got lost in all of the characters, which I was very surprised by considering that the first shot, all the names scroll on screen. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to keep track of all of this. And the soundscape of this film is as punishing as if you were standing in that apartment building where construction is going because endless construction, endless like musical cues that is defining the action like this big dramatic thing that is happening. And while there is a kind of nihilistic view at like the misery of life, there's also some you know, humanism to be found here or there, even if sometimes it is forced upon these characters by one individual who is pushing things forward. The prefabricated buildings are used as this visual metaphor, I guess, for the Soviet person, like the Soviet subject, where everyone everyone is basically the same. And in fact, as the movie goes along, you see all of these characters who don't know who anyone is. And yeah, or, oh, I don't need to get involved in that. It has nothing to do with me. It becomes the opposite of the collective solidarity that socialism is supposed to inspire. And 
I was struck watching it. Maybe this is a banal insight. I don't know. But it feels like the communism depicted in this film, and in fact, all of her films, is not unlike the capitalism that we live under. I mean, you look at a movie like Something Different and the relationship that the housewife has to her husband, this transactional relationship that she can't really leave because there's no support system for her. There's no there's no way for her to get out of it. It's not unlike what millions of women suffer under capitalism. Yeah, I mean, like, it's all about systematic rot that, you know, on the outside, the idea of these prefabricated buildings, it's great on paper, but the people in charge of it are corrupt. And that trickles down to the people that need to participate in these systems. Vera is not shy about just letting the audience know when, you know, a young mother needs to get her kid in a nursery and they're like, sorry, we're all filled up. We can't help you. And she's like, all right. I'll give you a payment, (laughs) you know, if this is what I need to do. My friend did it. This is the only way to work within this corrupt system. Or someone that tells, um, you know, repairman, I'm in this apartment. I cannot get any other apartment. You are not throwing me out. And then the repairman speaking to themselves going, maybe this is what we should do. Give the apartment to people that don't have homes. Then we won't have to do repairs because they'll be so happy to have it. Daisy's is the only one of her films that I feel like has really entered the canon, although that may change soon given the increased availability of her work. The fact that a lot of her major films are on the Criterion channel now, for instance. And most of these movies were not widely seen even in the Soviet Union during her lifetime or during most of her lifetime, certainly not widely seen in in the West. And it's interesting to kind of uncover them because they feel like her films feel like these strange fusions of a lot of different trends that hit international art house filmmaking over the last 50 or 60 years like there's a bit of the french new wave there's a bit of neorealism there's a bit of structuralist filmmaking i don't know i even see some like kind of terry gilliam energy in some of her stuff absolutely it is especially with those wide angles that's that terry gilliam kind of perspective on things you know i'd be fascinated to know why you know her films didn't get the distribution that others have i mean it probably has something to do with you know her government either Uh, not giving a push behind them, her being a woman filmmaker, so people were just kind of like brushing her aside. Because it feels like something like Prefab, that could have easily, um, you know, penetrated an international market considering that it is Altman-esque, it's in your face, it speaks to a kind of universal idea of experiencing these kind of things. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm happy that it's out there. And she did have her career. So it wasn't like she made three films and then she just disappeared. She just had to fight for it every single minute of the day. And she didn't get the attention I think that she deserved. Like the Apple game, which I mentioned, it only exists on like a DVD that came out in some Asian country. I couldn't find exactly which one unsubtitled. So, you know, there's still a lot to be discovered out there beyond daisies, I feel. And a lot of it is extremely interesting. Like, like I mentioned, The Wolf's Hole, which I watch, like that is essentially a genre film. There's aliens in the movie (laughs) and it is just super weird and in your face. And while it doesn't really deliver those kind of genre thrills, like there's not really any murders or anything in it, it is so odd. And it's hitting those Zalowski kind of paranoid in your face beats that I think that there's a whole audience out there that could discover that. And it's sitting right there on the Criterion channel for you to watch. Well, Justin, do we have any letters this week? Oh, no, Will, this is all we have to talk about this subject. I did all this research on the Czechoslovakia communist revolution, you know, the (laughs) um, 
<laughs> Velvet Revolution, the Velvet Divorce, the split from Czechoslovakia into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. I mean, you did all that research too as well, right, Will? Yes, yes, I did. I gotta go. And then you hear tires screeching. Uh, do we have any letters, Justin? Oh, of course we have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Alex Yu, and it goes... Hey, Justin and Will, thanks so much for making this podcast. I recently discovered it, so forgive me if you have already covered this topic in a main episode or a Patreon one. Anyway, one of the things I like to do while listening to your podcast is work on Warhammer 40k models. I hope it's 40k and not like 40,000. I was hoping you were going to say have sex. (laughs) Oh, God. Please do not let us know if you do that. We just assume everybody does. And the letter continues. If you're not so familiar, it's a tabletop kind of Dungeons and Dragons. Anyway, last year, a lone motion graphics artist made a 13-minute fan film that took the Warhammer scene by storm. It's one of the most impressive fan films I've seen, which got me thinking, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on fan films. What makes the short film, which is called Astartat, oh man, more stuff I can't pronounce, so interesting is that Game Workshop, the company that makes Warhammer, hired the creator and bought his fan film, making it official. Love the podcast. Thank you for keeping me company during the lockdown. Thanks, Alex. Fan films. (sighs) Not a fan, I have to say. Really? I mean, I'm actually quite intrigued by the idea of doing an episode on fan films because- I think we've discussed it in the past because our great love for Batman Dead End came up. Oh, that's right. We have, in fact, discussed Batman Dead End on, I think, a Patreon episode, which was not about fan films. It was about, like, viral early internet or, like, pre-internet. Right. kind of underground videos that used to circulate because we talked about that and we talked about your rat bastard Charlie Brown and- like Bambi versus Godzilla, stuff like that. My God, I don't even remember to do that discussion. You don't remember that? Well, Batman Dead End, just the thought of it tickles me because in like the early 2000s, the late 90s, there was this buzz in certain internet circles that this Batman fan film was the best Batman movie. It's like, forget the Tim Burton, forget the Joel Schumacher. This is the thing that does Batman right and actually captures the spirit of the comic. And in fact, I think no less than Mr. Kevin Smith himself was quoted as saying that. And what is the Batman fan film? Well, it's a guy in a, you know, uh, I guess pretty good Batman costume, walks down an alleyway, punches the Joker, and then boom, he gets attacked by the Predator. That's right. And I mean, the short does have some atmosphere. It has some nice kind of like rainy vibes and the Batman costume is not bad. But I mean, it's you can't get around the fact that it's really stupid. I think that my issue with fan films, it's I view it sometimes as the filmmakers just want to bring to life a vision of the property that they love. And they don't often think about like, okay, but how do I make this engaging How do I find an interesting angle, a reason to do this beyond, look, I made a cool cosplay, now it's on screen, and it's moving, and I guess maybe it's kind of doing cool stuff? Because in my personal opinion, there's just a limit to like, okay, you did that, but what else did you do? How could you have made something more compelling without just kind of illustrating or bringing a comic book to life. And that's just my opinion. Like, you know, cosplaying is huge. I like cosplaying, so why do I not like fan films? I am a mass of uh, contradictions, if you will. Well, also, fan films are like amateur productions. They don't have the resources behind them. Even the worst. That's fine. Yeah, and that that is fine. But it's like, it's a reason sometimes why the idea isn't more than just what if I made a Batman movie? Because a Hollywood movie has layers of bureaucracy that are there to say, okay, why would you make a Batman movie? What's the angle on this Batman movie? And like, uh, why does the alien have to show up? 
<laughs> and like grab Batman or the Predator or whoever it is. Yeah. Um, but I would actually be curious to know, like, what are the canonical fan films beside the one that the letter writer mentioned and besides Batman Dead End? Like, are there are there some really good ones? Um, yeah, ones that just like take a property and find a compelling way to show it on screen beyond just like, hey, Lobo's on screen and he's killing Santa, which I remember was another big one around like the comic book fan community when I was looking at that stuff and reading my wizard magazine. I would also say that when you mentioned that there's an amateurish tuness to it, I think that the fan film thing that bugs me is when it's really slick and expensive looking and you can tell they spent a lot of money on it. And I'm like, why? Do your own thing instead. I know why. Because they get attention. Because people are like, look, the Punisher is doing stuff that the Punisher has never done on screen. Our next letter is from Hunter Sawyer. And he goes, hello, important cinema club arenos. I've always appreciated the clarity and sharpness of your conversations, but recent episodes, for no reason than my own neurosis, have turned my attention to a perennial problem I've had when watching films. Despite taking numerous film classes as an undergrad and eventually getting a master's in film studies, yes, I'm currently unemployed, <laughs> I've always run into a master elemental problem Problem when writing and talking about film. I've always had a struggle when attempting to take notes during a film and the various strategies of doing so. Pausing to jot down a thought, attempting to write without looking at the page, watching a film twice and focusing on note-taking the second time around have always seemed inadequate and disruptive to the process of actually experiencing a film. Do y'all film potters have any tips, tricks, or cool stunts to share with a congenital note failure such as myself? Thank you for your time and keep doing the Lord Andrew Saris's good work, Hunter. I don't overthink it, I gotta say. There are some movies that I take notes on, some movies that I don't take notes on. It helps that on this podcast we're often talking about movies that we've seen at least once before so that the uh, sacredness of watching it isn't all that important but i would say that notes that i've taken for this podcast haven't been all that detailed yeah usually when i take notes it's just names and dates and stuff like that or maybe like one big thought that i can kind of jot down while i'm watching something but i don't really get too in the weeds for the important cinema club and i've only done it for something like no such thing as a bad movie podcast because we go through the plot beat by beat. So I need to write notes down because my instinct when I do a podcast about films is to just kind of like gloss over stuff because I assume the people listening have maybe not seen the film or it's not something they're familiar with. So if I go like beat by beat over something, it can get like, okay, come on, move on. I need a point of contact here. Yeah, I do more notes on Michael and us too for the same reason. And for this, I think, I don't know about you, sometimes I'll write notes like, before we record after watching the movies just to have like a framework just to have like a, a point that you can hit while you're talking or like all right i can bring it over here from this quote by this person or this historical or trivia fact a little peek behind the curtain folks that's uh, how the sausage is made i mean people may be surprised that i can't remember people's names or dates i know shocking shocking <laughs> our last question is from tony marshall and he goes hey guys me and my friends have been binge watching british movies to get away from the american oversaturation in our film school note we are all British. That's funny that in their uh, British school that they are being forced to watch only American films. Well, I mean, what can you say? America has a better film history. You know what, Will? Uh, I've talked about this with you over the last few months, but we got to do like more British filmmakers. We barely touch them. You know what I would like to do? An area of film that I have not really explored at all are those like, wait, because I have, uh, let me continue this letter. And a debate cropped up about what would be more painful, marathoning all the James Bonds 
or all of the Carry On movies. <laughs> I don't know how famous the Carry On films are in Canada, but I imagine it is a question challenge I put to you guys. I know you hate James Bond and love dated comedy, so it felt appropriate to put to you. I mean, you don't hate James Bond. I don't really hate James Bond either. No, I don't hate James Bond, but whenever it comes up, whenever James Bond comes up, we're always talking about how they're kind of boring and, you know. Which they are. Which they are. And and yeah, they're, all, they're usually disappointing. But I mean, I, I kind of... I wouldn't keep watching them if I hated them. That's right. I mean, sometimes they see your journey on Letterboxd and you're like, uh, yeah, Roger Moore, Karate Chops, some guy in this two and a half hour movie. Even the bad James Bond movies have stuff that keeps me coming back. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, some nice scenic vistas. Some... <laughs> Maybe Roger Moore will die in this one because he looks to be on the brink of it. Uh, the Timothy Dalton one, uh, the license to kill. That one was pretty good when I watched it not that long ago. Oh, that one's fun. Yeah, the dark one. Uh, have you watched On Her Majesty's Secret Service oh, yet? Oh, yeah, it's really good. That's like one of the top three, I would say. And as far as carry-on movies, I have never seen one of them. <laughs> no, but I mean, I am definitely aware of them. When I was a kid, they had some of them at my video store. Yeah, they looked a little too naughty. Uh, I, yeah, I've, I've not seen a second of any carry-on film, but I, I get the gist. It's like... It's like Benny Hill kind of comedy, like uh, uh, women and their knickers and uh, some some fucking guy is horny. But lots of spoofing. Like they were the spoof movies of their day because there's like carry on screaming, carry on sergeant. Like, you know, it's about tackling genres and having women with, uh, you know, large breasts that are uh, participating in these types of things from my North American perspective. Yeah, I think there was always kind of the perception here, at least, that like you had your money python and your faulty towers and that was serious that was good british comedy and then there was the stuff for the plebs like um, for some reason i saw a lot of benny hill when i was a kid <laughs> like i don't know was it like a pbs stable they're like throw some benny hill on <laughs> so we don't need to think about I it i definitely saw some benny hill i remember i saw his fucking there was a special he did called benny hill in new york <laughs> and the reason i remember it the reason I remember it is because it opens with him doing a rap. Wow. <laughs> like, so this must be like, you know, in his years, Benny Hill. Oh, yeah. He's like very close to death in this. And yeah, he... What he, could he possibly do other than like look at women on stage and be like, oh, because wasn't that a shtick? That's basically what he did. Like he came out and he did this this rap and like he was surrounded by like dancers who were dressed in kind of like New York style or whatever. And, and he did this rap about like, oh, I was... Uh, uh, now listen up here and I'll tell you a tale. I, I was looking at a birdie. <laughs> Wait, on... was it set to the beat of like... <laughs> Do you think they saved the Benny Hill song for like the end of the show? Because that's what everybody's waiting for. In fact, they did. I remember that. It ended. <laughs> it's the encore. They're like, he can't leave without playing the Benny Hill theme song. I remember that special ended with some like stupid shtick where he was in Central Park and there was that, you know, sped up silent movie type stuff where he's getting chased and they played the Benny Hill music for that. Yeah. That's when the audience jumps to their feet and they're like, yes, yes. It's been 25 years since I've seen this, by the way. I could be wrong. And uh, the letter writer has one little PS. Frank Hellenlaut or William Lustig episodes coming soon. Your fan, Tony. I don't know if we'd have a full episode on those guys, but we've covered their work quite a bit on our Patreon stuff. Yeah, Frank Hennenlauter, I love him as a guy. I love him as a public figure. I love the work he does with Something Weird Video. The movies... Oh, I really like Basket Case and Brain Damage. 
Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I'm not a big Frankenhooker fan. Uh, bad biology also, not so hot. And that would apply the same stuff to William Lustig, even though I probably like a few more William Lustig movies. I really like Maniac Cop. I like Vigilante. I like all the like DTV action films he kept being fired from in the 90s. I think I probably like Lustig a bit better too, because his stuff is a little more raw, a little grittier. Like, the Frank Hennenlotter ones are goofy. Hennenlotter would say it himself that they are approximations of his experiences at the Grindhouse. That said, if Frank Hennenlotter wants to be my friend, uh, I, w- I would love that. I once handed him a copy of Teddy Bomb while he was at a convention and said, I ripped off a lot of brain damage uh, making this movie. I have not heard back from him since. <laughs> I'm sure it's on that big shelf of movies that he has behind him every time he's interviewed. Uh, you know, he's probably been sending letters, but they're to the wrong address. They've just been bouncing back. It's okay, Frank. We still love you. So what are we doing on the Patreon this week, Will? <laughs> we did something that we promised to do a while ago. For our Patreon subscribers, if we hit a certain financial goal for the month, we allowed them to put us through a marathon. We gave them several options for what marathon they can put us through. And which one did they pick? Uh, I'll tell you which ones they didn't pick. They they didn't... <laughs> DreamWorks animated films, which it's a good thing they didn't. I couldn't have taken that much Shrek. No, there was there would have been no Shrek. That was the that was the category. Oh, all the DreamWorks. Oh God, <laughs> fuck. So a Shark's Tale B movie. <laughs> oh, I, I'm so glad that one didn't win. I, I think I would have laughed more through that one. Oh, that one's still going to make it on the list next time. Don't worry. They also didn't pick John Cleese paycheck movies, which you know I, I guess I'm not shocked that one didn't win. Feel like you would have suffered more than the American Pie with the John Cleese ones. When you look at John. Cleese's filmography it's pretty dire but what yeah what they picked was five American Pie movies so we watched American Pie American Pie 2 American Wedding and American Reunion and we also delved into one of the direct-to-video spin-off films American Pie Presents Band Camp and so this is one of our self-destructing episode so I don't know when I will take it off but probably in like a week or two it will disappear from the Patreon feed forever and it's like a full episode I think it came out to like four minutes because we recorded a little like a five minute bit after every movie that we watch and what's really funny while editing it is you will never get a more kind of whiplash uh will than listening to this episode because from watching the second one where will's like i'm having a fun time you know this is fun to the third one where he's like i hate this this is awful (laughs) i'm so miserable And there were still two movies left after that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it started strong and then I quickly was driven mad too much stifler or stifler clones yeah in the direct-to-video one you meet stifler's brother and let me tell you you sir are no stifler (laughs) you start to feel nostalgic for uh, sean william scott's endless dancing to no comedic effect so you can check that out on our patreon patreon.com slash the important cinema club five dollars a month you get that episode we just mentioned and our entire patreon back catalog you don't even need friends you can just hang out with us the important cinema club well what are we doing next week justin we're going to explore the blacklist yes that's right when hollywood decided to bring some of its artists to court and ask them can you name names of communist sympathizers that you know yes and we're gonna talk about films either written by blacklist people or inspired by the witch hunt in some way we're gonna talk about leo mccary's A scorching anti-communist film, My Son John. And we will also talk about Salt of the Earth, an independent production that was uh, just made to be a pro-communist 
feature film done by a bunch of blacklisted people in Hollywood. It's a very big subject, so I feel like we're going to try to be like a little introduction to people that are curious and, you know, using these films. I think we had another one on the list. I think we wanted a pro-Russia film before the blacklist happened, right? Yeah, so uh, we're already apologizing in advance, but that's okay. That's how we do it. You know, you got to ready people's expectations before they get into it. So until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Slime. Thanks for listening. Justin here to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Lloyd Blackman, Ian McNamara, Amy Seeger, Ollie Drumbum, Peyton Cook, Archer Miles, Adam Herbner, Garrett Frazen, Ethan, Jack Anderson, Andrew Lewis, Alex Katz, Danny, Esme Holden, Carlos Ramirez, Nick Martin, and Felix Dembinski. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Remember when Knives Out came out and it was essentially a mid-budget movie, right? I think it cost $50 million to make. It made like 300 plus million dollars. Like that's a victory for something that's not a blockbuster. Did you see the news recently considering the Knives Out sequels? Yeah, I saw that Netflix bought two Knives Out sequels for the sum of $450 million. Money doesn't exist. Like it doesn't mean anything, right? Like what is 400? and 50 fucking million dollars for two sequels and that like the news that came out that seems that like netflix only bought the rights to them like is that 450 million dollars production cost because it didn't sound like it i don't know i'm sure some of it has to go to the production cost right it's like so amazon bought coming to america the sequel and they bought it for something like 120 million dollars i think from paramount and that but that was a complete film though but that amount of money covers the production cost of the film and gives paramount a little bit of profit and i imagine that there's some kind of deal that's going on here like maybe each of those movies each of those movies will cost 100 million dollars each and then that gives the people making it a hundred million dollars profit as well. I don't well, know. Yeah, I guess it's a lot of fucking money. Holy shit! Like that is so <laughs> much money. It's kind of like nauseating. It's like I just don't even want to know that. Like, just do it behind closed doors. But when they make announcements like that, it's like you know what? Don't make mid-budget movies. Let's just have like Godzilla fight Superman or whatever. It doesn't matter. Movies are dead, right? I mean, when The Irishman was in production and we heard that it cost two hundred million dollars, I mean that seems seemed like that seemed like a heaven's gate style situation gotta be honest that 200 mil not really up on screen either for the cg effects that you see them and you go like hey well it's still bad though (laughs) it's all up there on al pacino's face justin al pacino making him from i don't know how old he is 80 to 60 that's 100 million dollars right there but i mean that seemed like the height of decadence but i didn't realize at the time that i mean that would just be the new normal like you remember in the 90s when it was considered so insane that a company like Miramax paid $10 million for a movie at Sundance. $10 million! Uh, And now these big sums of money are being thrown around, and it just means nothing. If anything, it is raising the bar that anybody making even a middle, you know, production like Knives Out is expected to make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars instead of it being a modest hit that becomes you know, kind of a very well-loved movie when it comes to homes and continues to live on. Nope, now it needs to come out of the gate and make at least 250, 
sometimes $300 million would be better to get any attention. Because, like I said, money doesn't really mean anything. So it's just numbers being thrown around and, you know, executives having to, you know, top those numbers for them to have any value to their own lives and the things that they participate in, in no ways creatively. But also, like, money doesn't mean anything in the sense that these movies aren't actually making money directly. Like, Netflix is paying $450 million to have these movies on their service. No one will ever know how much money it generates for Netflix. Yeah, even Netflix won't really know because there's no way to know how many people created a Netflix account on that day just to see those movies or how many people kept their Netflix subscription going for another month just to see those movies. Well, you know why, right? It's because when they announced that they spent $450 million on Knives Out, that makes people that, you know, are on the stock market want to buy Netflix stock because they're spending that much money. That must mean they have a lot of money or think it will make a lot of money, which makes the stock go up, which makes the company have more value, even though technically it's like billions and billions and billions of dollars in the red. Do you remember hearing earlier a couple of months ago that Sony was shopping around the new James Bond movie to various streaming yeah then they want almost like 700 million dollars yeah for it? because i mean i guess that's about how much it what they would have needed to get to make a profit on it and nobody took it and so we know that that's the limit right now uh 600 700 million dollars they're not yet quite willing to pay that and wasn't there like something going around that the producers of james bond were losing like a million or two million dollars a day just based on interest from the movie not coming out oh painful wow i mean is it painful are they gonna have to get rid of one of their 10 yachts or something like that yeah i mean i don't give a shit but i mean that movie was supposed to come out of april last year if what you're saying is true they'll have lost 500 million dollars by the time it comes out yeah probably but listen no movie ever goes into profit so they never really have to pay anybody and it doesn't matter other than the news headlines that go around uh letting people know how much stuff sold or things break box office records like avatar just did because it got re-released what? What? <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm not a numbers man. No, I don't care either. Uh, I'm I'm just here to enjoy the cinema. That's right. King Kong versus Godzilla on the small screen in your home. But actually, this was all a big build up to listen. If money doesn't mean anything, someone should give me $100,000 to make a Knives Out ripoff. I'm right here. I'll do it. It'll cost you less money than having to go the Netflix route. You're underselling yourself. I think a, a streaming service, maybe not Netflix, maybe like Crackle. Is Crackle still in existence? Oh, no, no, no. Listen, let's think Canadian. So uh, maybe like CBC Gem. That's one of the streaming services out there. Yeah, they should give you yeah, $5 million. That seems like an enormous amount of money for Canada. I got my cast. Catherine O'Hara, Daniel Levy, uh, Colin Fior, Paul Gross, Simon Liu from Kim's Convenience. That show's canceled. To the whole cast of Kim's Convenience. I feel like I'm going to have a million dollar hit on my Well, hand. I'm sure they're listening right now. 